Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JMInTheAM.org. And yes, we had a hiatus. We were off last week. And this week we are not live because I am headed to Cleveland, Ohio for the bar mitzvah of my nephew, Gavriel Pollock. A big shout out to Gavriel, to his mother, Alana, and to his father, David Pollock. But we're back talking politics, and there's, of course, a lot to talk about. Last week, we were, brought the show to APAC on the road, taped some interviews. They're on the archive. Check them out. They're not bad. They're fun. I don't want to name any names, but uh, out there, there are there are quite a few. So, folks, uh, APAC was a lot of people. There's a lot of people. We're going to talk about it. We have a couple guests coming on tonight. We have Dan Senor, who is a very prominent commentator on the Middle East foreign policy expert, GOP leaning, advisor to Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, and the like. We have Jeff Balban, who's going to talk about the upcoming CPAC conference and some of the Jewish involvement and ginning up Jewish involvement. We have Yair Rosenberg, who covers who covered APAC and covers politics, particularly as relates to the Orthodox community, for Tablet Magazine. And he writes some uh, very interesting articles for that. We might have also a surprise local political guest, but we'll keep that as a surprise for right now. And as we're sitting here today, kind of the beginning, middle of March, right before, a month before tax day, we are post-sequester. I like to mention that every single week that we go on. We are kind of pre-Israeli government. doesn't appear yet that there is a coalition in place, although it might be. We are post-APAC, but pre-Obama visit to Israel. And, of course, pre-Pesach. So there's a lot. We're in between. A lot of a lot of goalposts out there. It looks like Washington is softening up quite uh, just a little bit, potentially. The president invited some Republicans out to dinner. Then he went to the Hill to go ahead and try and talk. And isn't that nice that politicians are now talking to each other in Washington, actually kind of relating to one another? So, folks, that is a very, very interesting phenomenon right now, and we have to see where that goes. So, as you said, there's just a lot going on, folks, and we are going to unpack it all and try and offer some analysis, some good talk, some good political talk, some good political understanding, and, of course, that's what you're here for. So stay tuned, and we will, right now, going to go to our first guest, who's on the line. Me one second. Hello? Hello, Councilman Donovan Richards. Hey, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, good morning. So, Councilman Richards, uh, this show is actually going to air on uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night. Okay. But I know I wanted to get you (laughs) (laughs) pre-inaugural. So I want to to kind of go in there with the state of mind. So just to introduce Councilman Richards. Councilman Richards is is the newly minted councilman for the 31st Councilmanic District in southeastern Queens, covering uh, Rosedale, Laurelton, Far Rockaway, and and the suburbs of those. Springfield Gardens, too. Ah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, you know, I never know when to leave people out, so uh, so it's good. So, Councilman Richards, you, you won a very close and hotly contested race, and uh, it's always good, even if you win by one vote, to emerge the victor, of course. Oh, of course. A win is a win. Uh, when that's you play right. in a basketball game, if you win by one point, you still won. That, that, um, that's but, what the but, guys up in uh, Mount Vernon and New Rochelle found out, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, it was a great race. Um, there, were, there were many great people in it, and Paysock ran in it. He was, ran a phenomenal campaign. And, you know, as I always tell people, I never underestimated what Paysock would do. I always thought the race was between uh, myself and him, and, and he surely turned out the way I just about anticipated he would. So, it was a great race, and me and Paysock will be working together um, very closely in the near future. And don't be shocked if you see us working together pretty soon. That's that's excellent. So, uh, Councilman, you you have you enjoyed a, a long-standing relationship with the the sizable Jewish community in the district. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You've had, it's it's not that you're a newcomer, but 
maybe for a second, because of the audience that listens to the show, introduce yourself for a second with regard to your background and you know some of the involvement you've had with some of the issues. Well, um, I've been with I've been with the city council. I actually got my start ten years ago uh, in politics. Never actually thought I would ever work in politics, but ten years ago today, on today, I had a friend, a close friend of mine, childhood friend of mine, who was murdered, and I decided to go to a meeting on gun violence and. Um, Ten years later, on his anniversary, you, I could not have planned this. Um, I am being sworn as a city sworn in as a city council member uh, of the district where his mother resides. His mother actually will be traveling with me to city hall today, and um, it's just a real honor. I, I, I served in every capacity there is over the past ten years in the city council office. I served as uh, a scheduler, community liaison, district manager, deputy chief of staff, and work my way up to the chief of staff in the position. Some of the issues over the years I, I'll say I address, and I'll speak in particular in, in, in the Orthodox area. Um, the traffic issue is always a big issue in that particular um, community. I was successful in getting a traffic light on uh, Beach 9th Street over there, also off of Secret Boulevard. Um, I also worked with them very closely. They had a need for a new playground in that, in that particular area of, of my district. And working with the former council member, we were able to allocate around a half a million dollars to make sure that need was met. But there's always more you can do. Um, there's always better you can do. And I think this election um, certainly showed me that, you know, individuals and people felt like they weren't being heard. And that's not the sort of government that I want to bring to the table. I want to make sure that I bring a transparent government, a government that, that certainly I'm held accountable. And three, I want to make sure I'm the council member for everyone. So I just look forward to doing that. I was down at the JCC yesterday um, they, where they did the, the Passover uh, kickoff with Shop and Stop. Um, so I just look forward to continuing to be responsive and most importantly, showing up. And, and I want to Absolutely. show everyone that I care. Absolutely. And you come at uh, a tough time. Well, a tough time, but a time of opportunity, I think. You know, yes. you, you had your, you were, the district is still suffering the aftermath of Sandy. Yeah. And you're, but you're also coming up on a city budget. Uh, yes. and it's an, it's an interesting budget year, of course, because yes. we know a lot of people are running for election. Yes. And, uh, but the mayor is leaving. Yep. Uh, so it's, there's, there is time for opportunity for even a freshman like yourself to make a, have a real impact. Well, yes, and it surely shows. I, I've, I've been appointed to six committees in the council, some that I think would be really useful to our particular community, uh, especially in light of Sandy. Um, I've been appointed to waterfronts, economic development, environmental protection, and these these particular committees are very useful at this time post-Sandy. Now, I did get an update from LIFER yesterday, and I'm, not, I'm still really not happy. 2,000 people in the Rockaways, in downtown Far Rockaway alone, uh, 1,000 people are still without electricity. Still not, still without electricity from still Sandy? Still without electricity post-Sandy. You heard the number. 2,000 people total in my district. This is not including Eric Ulrich's, Councilman Ulrich's district. That's unbelievable. 2,000 in mine. So I'm really livid on this, and I'm, I'm getting hot on it. I'm calling on um, the HUD secretary to make sure that he issues emergency housing vouchers, which would be good so people can go and actually get affordable housing while their homes are being fixed up, sort of what they did post-Katrina. And we're not seeing the same steam that we've seen post-Katrina. We, we need that here in New York City. Um, I'm, I'm also exploring, um, trying to figure out how the city can piece together some money so we can do our own rapid repairs. I know in the, particularly in the Orthodox community, I believe the program I, I heard about yesterday was NEVA. NEVA, yes. And yeah. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but that's the model, that's the model that we need to, to use and just do ourselves because if right. we wait. Neighbors for helping neighbors, I think. Yeah, if we, if we wait for government, we'll be waiting. We'll still have 2,000 people out. <laughs> during the summer, you know, and wow. by God's grace, many people survived the winter, but this is, this is, this is going, this is close to a crime. This is close to criminal, how we can allow 2,000 people to still be without electricity, even, even today. I mean, there should be no one without electricity. That, that, um, that's, unbe- that's really unbelievable. Yes. Uh, Councilman, tell, I, I think it's, noteworthy that uh, you are a young, fresh face, as well as your your counterpart in the western half of the Rockaways, 
Councilman Ulrich is uh, is also a pretty young guy. Yeah. What, what does that say about the Rockaways having uh, a, a cadre of elected of elected officials? Of uh, well, and don't leave off. Leave don't off Phil I was going to get to him. Too. I just I just wanted yeah. to talk about the councilman first. But, but it's great. It's great. We need people with new ideas. People who are going to come up with new action plans and a new outcome. And that's that's what I'm certainly looking to do. So it's actually an honor to be in the new generation. I'll call it serving the community because many times. As you know, the the younger politicals in this business, uh, they're not giving, afforded the opportunity, so we sort of just have to take them. And um, so I was blessed to be elected and, and certainly come with some fresh ideas and certainly a new outlook on, on how government should respond and how we should all work together. I'm not, I didn't come into this business to get caught in the, what happened 20 years ago, a decade ago, and many people say, you know, to me, you should be mad at Taysock or be mad and you shouldn't do anything with anyone, but that's not the sort of politics we need at this time. When 2,000 people are still without electricity, it would behoove me to still operate under those guidelines of politics. So I just want to... Absolutely. I, I, I want to work and move forward. That That's you know, very some very refreshing statements, and I think that that is exactly what uh, citizens can and should expect of their elected officials to go ahead and you know once the race is over everybody is is in it together and that that's exactly. that's very important exactly so, councilman one final question because i know time is tight and this is a busy and important day for you is particularly with regard to the jewish community and the rockaways uh there there are education is a major is a major issue and there are always uh there are always issues that the private schools have as far as getting services uh, when it com- getting services for themselves, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the you know the District 27 or or just the city education department in general, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what? How do you see your office as being as being helpful in that regard? Well, I'm going to have some great guidance. As I told you, Pesach Osina is going to be working very closely with me, and he's going to be the one to sort of you know, bring me up to speed and sort of say, bring me up to speed on what can I do better? What can I do on a city level? Now, my my thing is I want to make sure my public schools are doing well. And no matter what schools you are in, I want the children to be able to excel. Uh, You know, so I'm certainly interested in looking at any proposal or any suggestions and seeing what I can do on the city level. But, you know, once again, I want to see all of our children excelling in education, being able to afford college, being able to afford school, and going on to have bright futures. So, you know, I'll be looking at these things, and it was certainly something I heard Paysock bring up uh, during his campaign. Listen, because during a campaign, it shouldn't be about, he said this is wrong. You're also It's also a learning experience, and you should anybody who's running should be able to listen to what other candidates are saying. They have valid points as well during this campaign. Absolutely. So I, I heard that the, uh, many families over there are hurting, and I look forward to sitting and hearing from that from your particular community because I don't know everything. I don't, and I will never pretend to know everything, but I look forward to being advised and, and sort of brought up to speed on how I can be useful. Well, Councilman, that's that's great, and I think that uh, I, I want to thank you for your time. And obviously, there's a lot going on this year. I think you're you're almost ready, probably, to make some endorsements coming up in in some of the various races. Oh, we're, we're you, gonna, you know what? You we'll know we'll what? leave let those. Warm, let me warm my seat before I get in trouble. <laughs> As I said, we'll leave those for the next <laughs> for your next appearance on the show. I really appreciate you coming on, and, I and look forward. congratulations and best of luck to you. Thank Councilman Donovan Richards it. of the 31st Councilmanic District in Southeast Queens, congratulations on your win. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Enjoy the rest Thank of Thank you. All right. Bye. So switching gears as we do from the, the local to the national and even the international, we have a special guest on the program making his first appearance, Dan Senor, who is really a jack of all par, foreign policy trades out there, uh, having served in Iraq at the Coalition Provisional Authority, and then in various positions uh, throughout government and po- politics, most notably recently as an advisor to Mitt Romney and to Paul Ryan in their campaign, unsuccessful campaign for the presidency, you might remember a couple months ago. Dan, welcome to Spin Class. 
Great to be with you, Michael. How are you? Everything is well. So it's good to have you in uh, in one place for a couple minutes that we can that we can chat a little bit you about know, what's this going is like on. A good opportunity. You know, you and I have been trying to figure out a time to get together, and uh, and hell, if we just have to do it over over a radio interview, then that's what we'll do. Exactly. So you know, chat a couple hundred, a couple thousand people might be listening, and right. you know, hopefully we'll say something interesting and people all will... among friends. Exactly. Exactly. So Dan, we're in a we're in an interesting time. Uh, I, I watched your. I saw your interview at APAC, uh, and uh, it, we're, we're kind of pre the presidential visit, I guess historic, uh, president, pre-Pesach visit of, the, of President Obama to Israel, and there's just a lot going on in Washington, but let's talk about the, the Israel situation right now, and uh, what, what is going on? There is no government yet. Is the president really going to go? I think the president will go. Uh, I hope. Uh, obviously, the, the Israelis work through the process sooner rather than later to form a government. Uh, I think that uh, what the president's going to learn on his trip to Israel is is a fewfold. Uh, one, uh, I think he'll he'll discover that it's hard to expect a real process on the Israeli-Palestinian track when two factors seem uh, tragically alive and well. One is. There continues to be no interlocutor on the Palestinian side that can deliver any kind of lasting uh, peace agreement that accomplishes a few things. One, obviously, security for Israel, uh, independence for Israel, and uh, independence for Palestinian state. Two, uh, actually resolves that this is the end of the conflict, the end of the conflict that actually is declarative about the war between the Israelis and the Palestinians is over. Three recognizes that Israel is the Jewish state, the Jewish state, that there'll be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, and Israel is the Jewish state. And finally, that Israel's going to, even though the Palestinian state will be a sovereign state, uh, there will, Israel will have some security requirements, particularly on the eastern side of a, of a, of a, uh, eastern border of a Palestinian state that only Israel can manage. These are these are issues that Israelis have talked about. These are issues that you know seem to transcend partisan lines in Israel across the political spectrum. And now, what's needed? And Israelis, I think, are willing to go quite far in uh, achieving this kind of uh, resolution. But they need an interlocutor on the other side, someone who can deliver a deal. It's not clear that that person um, exists. Two. Uh, what I also think, uh, I hope the president will realize, is the extent to which the chaos on the region directly implicates the decisions, or directly impacts the decisions any Israeli government will have to make about security and a final agreement and the final contours and agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. That is to say, as one former Israeli diplomat recently put it to me, you know, Israel cannot be pressured to pitch a tent in the middle of a hurricane. The region Good is metaphor. experiencing a hurricane right now, okay? The region sure. is up in flames. And w- w- until that fire is put out, Israel can't be expected to make long-term decisions that put its own basic security um, at risk. So uh, I, to the extent that the president is hoping is hopeful that there be an Israeli-Palestinian track, I, I, I hope this trip will be a little bit of a wake-up call. So you're – Looking at this as a really serious potential policy implication visit, as opposed to some who are trying to say, okay, the president hasn't been to Israel yet, therefore he needs to go, but they don't really expect anything of, of note to be accomplished. Oh, I, I think the, uh, you know, I think the president, uh, my sense is the president is hopeful that, that it, 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 it can be a symbolic visit. Similar to the, to the to along the lines of what you're describing, which is sending a message that I have never been. I'm here, but I think he also hopes, by virtue of him being there, he's expending some political capital, and by being there, he can try to spark some some momentum uh, behind a, a peace process. I, I will say, like I, I, I'm quite, you know, I'm I'm cautiously, shall we say, cautiously uh, optimistic about this trip. I don't want to rain all over it. But I am dubious that it will produce much in a concrete sense from a from any kind of peace process. However, uh, I have uh, w- one thing I'm hopeful the president will experience when he's there is the dynamism of Israel's startup economy. Uh, uh, you're, you're preempting you're preempting one of my questions. Okay, I, purpo- I purposely left out 
the book because I had I had a little story that I wanted to tell. All right, go ahead. So go I'm ahead, gonna go go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to sell the story in advance. So I actually uh, was in a meeting with uh, Ambassador Ido Aroni, the Consul General of, of New York, uh, yep. Monday morning, uh, with some uh, foreign people from outside the country, and uh, he gave everybody a copy of the book of Startup Nation. And I said, this was a book, a fantastic book, written by yourself and Saul Singer about the Israeli technological marvel miracle. And I said, uh, Ambassador, I have the book already. Uh, in fact, I think uh, you know, possible that the author might have given it to me. And he says, oh, you should take another one. You'll give it out to so I bought 10,000 copies, and I'm giving it out to everybody because this is the book, as far as I'm concerned, that tells Israel's story. Well, Now, go ahead. No, that's very that's very kind of of uh, uh, Ambassador Aharoni and very uh, and generous and very kind of you to mention it's uh, it's uh, it's very exciting. The, the 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 book is is gone in a thousand different directions that we never even anticipated. It's now in about twenty five different languages in over twenty countries. Uh, so from China to Brazil to to throughout Latin America to to India to throughout Europe. So it's it's very exciting, but. What 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 what's interesting now? What's happening is, if we're sort of going to do Startup Nation 2.0, uh, is just the extent to which major multinational companies, uh, technology companies in the United States, have become dependent on Israel. They're either gobbling up Israeli startups like uh, IBM, which has bought some ten. Uh, Israeli startups. They're opening opening innovation R&D centers in Israel. Apple opening announced it's opening its first R&D center outside the United States, opening it in Israel. Uh, Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, has says has said that Israel uh, that Microsoft is as much an Israeli company as it is an American uh, company because of the extent to which they depend on their Israeli employees. I can go on and on and on with every major American technology company. Just last week, I interviewed at, a, at the Israel Dealmakers Conference here in New York, uh, Jeff Emmelt, the CEO of, of GE, of General Electric, on and on and on about the extent to which GE is dependent on so much of what they're doing in healthcare and data analytics in uh, on Israel. So, Dan, and, I, and Dan, I have a question with regard to that. Is that how... You, you spend time in the Arab world, and mm-hmm. still clearly, how does the Arab world view Israel? Aside from the politics, how do these, how do they view the economic value of Israel? Are they? Are, you know, I think they're torn. They're torn. I think they're okay. torn. I think I think there's a real, you know, one of the most interesting um, annual pilgrimages, if you will, for me, is going to the World Economic Forum in Davos because it's sort of neutral territory, of course, as as one would expect. In Switzerland, uh, uh, and uh, and there's all these leaders from the Arab world there, particularly from the Persian Gulf countries, but not just the Persian Gulf countries. Um, and the number of you know, sh- you know members of royal families of, of of countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council, com- uh, leaders from from Bahrain and Oman and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar. Uh, who come up to me and say, "Hey, just want you to know." They sort of say it, on, you know, quietly. Hey, just want you to know, I'm a big fan of Startup Nation. Uh, I'm sharing it with everyone I know. I'm encouraging everyone to read it, but I, I can't, you know, I can't say it too publicly in my country or my nation's capital because I'll get in trouble. So, but I get this. This has now become a joke between Saul and me, my co-author, because we go to, because I go to Davos, and this is all I hear from these leaders. One young man came to me from Cairo. Came up to me and said, "I'm a, I'm a. He's actually is involved. He somehow he works for the Kennedy School, but he's based in Cairo. And he says, look, 'Look, I'm a student. I'm a, I'm a academic in Cairo, and I was asked to present to the to the Egyptian government about, uh, you know, uh, solutions for how to energize the Egyptian economy. And and I cited throughout this presentation, Startup Nation, lessons from Israel. And I got into trouble." for using a book that celebrates Israel's economic success as a reference point. So, so there's, this, there, there's this tension. Now, some people are very open about it. Uh, we have entrepreneurs in Jordan who've been very public about embracing uh, the book and, and waking up. Wake up, Arab world. We can learn from Israel. Um, Salam Fayyad, the, the Palestinian prime minister, uh, and I can say this because he said it publicly. He said it in an interview with Bloomberg, Bloomberg News. He says he keeps a copy of Startup Nation on his desk. Uh, it's a playbook for him for how to revitalize the economic environment, or not revitalize, spark the economic environment in places like Ramallah. Um, and so, you know, they're torn because there's this tension between the reformers and the modernizers in, uh, in the Arab world who say, let's not let our ancient hatreds, 
hold us back from learning from a country that that is literally making the world a better place and advancing its own country and advancing in terms of its contributions it makes to the world, society, Western civilization as we know it. Let's not let ancient ha- hatreds hold us back on the one hand. On the other hand, there's enormous pressure, uh, some of it statutory based and some of it just societal, socio socio-peer-based, uh, to, to, to ignore Israel, to, to stifle Israel out of the discussion. And so there's this tension right now. And, um, you know, I, I hope the modernizers, modernizers and the reformers and the, those who are open-minded uh, are, are in ascendance. It, it remains to be seen. So you got to give them a chance. So two words that I did not hear in Washington at APAC uh, over the three days last week. Chuck Hagel. Yeah. Okay. Not mentioned for, for mm-hmm. I think for good reason. You were I think a pretty outspoken critic of the nomination. I uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's pretty pretty much on record. I think uh, it got you invited over to uh, the Brzezinski House for Thanksgiving, perhaps, <laughs> uh, yeah. or maybe disinvited. Yeah. It, well, it, both. It, both well, invited and actually the story. <laughs> the funny thing is about that is Mika invited me. To, to Thanksgiving, uh, Mika Brzezinski, and then after she told me that her dad called her uh, after the show and said, "Is that for real? Did you really invite Dan for uh, for Thanksgiving?" So, uh, so I was invited and disinvited. Okay, so tell what do you assess as the implications of Chuck Hagel? Uh, I think it is a uh, I think it is um, a, a tragedy, truly, for for so many reasons. Uh, a tragedy that he was nominated, that he was confirmed, that that All of the pro-Israel committee lost the fight. My, here's my 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 big. Uh, obviously, uh, it's perfectly perfectly reasonable for for many people in the pro-Israel community to have concerns, deep concerns, as I did, about uh, Chuck Hagel's past statements and votes on anything related to the Middle East, whether it was. His votes against Iranian sanctions, his refusal to endorse uh, declaring Hezbollah a terrorist organization, whether it was his open encouragement pressure that Israel deal directly with Hamas, whether it was his refusal to sign a letter that 99 other senators signed uh, calling on the Russian government to deal with anti-Semitism in Russia. And you've got to feel pretty strongly about something if you insist on being the only senator out of 100 when 99 others sign it um, to, to withhold your signature. So obviously that record is worrisome. But I would add another element to it, which I wrote about in the Weekly Standard. Your, 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 um, your listeners can go to weeklystandard.com and just Google my or, or do a search for my name and see this story. The title of the piece was What a Defense Secretary Does. Because I was perplexed, Michael, when I, when I watched that hearing, where Chuck Hagel, and I worked in the Senate in the 90s when Chuck Hagel was in the Senate. I, I know him. I actually have a personal relationship with him. I'm friendly. I've been friendly with him as much as I strongly disagree with him. But, but what I saw in the Senate in the 90s and what I saw in that hearing was a man who I do not believe was equipped to be secretary, was qualified. He wasn't qualified to be secretary of defense. And when I, what I, what I, List out in the in the Weekly Standard article is actually in very specific terms what a defense secretary does. What does this defense secretary do day to day? This notion that don't worry, it's the president's policy and the defense secretary is just implementing it, and it doesn't really matter who the defense secretary is. Now, I worked for a defense secretary. I I I know a number of defense. I know several past defense secretaries. It's a real job. They make a hundred decisions a week that never reach the desk of the president. When Les Aspen made the decision to not provide the, 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 the requested uh, military assets in Somalia that were in 1993 that were requested by the commander in the region, that was a decision that never landed on President Clinton's desk. That was a decision that the defense secretary made on his own. The defense secretary is making decisions like that all the time. I watched Secretary Rumsfeld make decisions all the time, some of which I agreed with, some of which I disagreed with. But the important thing was that the buck actually stopped with him. It never reached the desk of the president, whether it's personnel, whether it's intelligence sharing with, with, with country, other countries, whether it's whether it's uh, deployments but they put and this... the movement of forces and the idea that Chuck Hagel could carry on the way he carried on in that hearing and demonstrated such a lack of understanding and knowledge about basic things 
that occur within the Defense Department, to have that kind of authority and responsibility was was very, very frustrating for, for, for me to see. Well, I think that's uh, certainly a cogent argument. I, I, I certainly see... You know, I see where you're coming from. This this White House seems to be very much in control of all their policies. You know, from from a West Wing, uh, from you know, every putting everything uh, pretty much in control by the West Wing, even of the age, of the individual departments. But what about the politics of it? Okay, the, going to bat against a nominee is the president entitled to a bad nominee if he wants a bad nominee? I, I my, my response to that is, of course, there are limits to that to that standard. So, generally speaking, the president should be able to appoint who he wants to serve in advisory roles uh, to him. Uh, you know, he, of course, he should be able to choose his personnel, and that is why he can choose anyone he wants in a range of White House. Uh, positions that are not subjected to Senate confirmation uh, and have no independent check uh, in those roles. There are certain positions in our government, however, that are so vast in terms of their responsibility and so the, the scope of, of management and administrative responsibility is so enormous that there is a legislative check. And the legislative check is the Senate shall have an advise and consent role okay. on these appointments. And by and large, no, by I, the way, I, they should be given – the Senate should give the president enormous deference. But sure. the advise and consent responsibility is there. Don't, don't take that responsibility cases. lightly. I think that's the idea. Okay, Dan, one final question. Yeah. Since we're almost out of time, and I, I really – this has been a fantastic discussion of pretty much a wide range of things. But let's yeah. just talk domestically politics, the Republican yeah. Party. It's all sure. over the place. Okay, you got CPAC coming up. Chris Christie snubbed, uh, and you just had would Mitt Romney, who you worked for, yeah, uh, let's say four years ago at this type of juncture, have got an invite to CPAC given his background. And uh, where are the Republicans going? It's just hard to. It's hard for even for a Republican to figure it out. Yeah. Well, first of all, I I, I wouldn't um, over read, read too much in any particular conservative confab or co- event right now uh, be, be, because I think we are in a completely open environment, a completely entrepreneurial environment. What I mean by that is uh, the party's in total disarray. Uh, there's no one really in charge, and I actually think that's pretty healthy. And different people can do post different conferences and invite who they want to invite or disinvite who they want to invite or snub who they want to snub. And others can, you know, experiment with running for office who may not have thought about it before. And others can experiment with new ideas and form new organizations. And I think there's going to be a lot of activity over the next couple of years um, because it's a chaotic open environment, because there's no hierarchy really to it. And I think we shouldn't read too much into any particular thing and just sort of let the chips fall where they may. And like any sort of open market environment, uh, someone or someones will emerge uh, over the next couple of years. And I think we should sort of let things play out and not, not get too wigged out. I, I think the, the, the conservative policy agenda, which is something I'm going to be spending some time on uh, over the next couple of years, uh, the conservative policy agenda needs to go through a modernization process. And some friends and colleagues and former colleagues of mine and I are, are kicking around ideas that we're going to that we're going to try to to get into the into the conservative uh, bloodstream, but time for a new book. Perhaps. A lot of people have other ideas, and and it's it's a it's a healthy open environment. Let's not get stressed out. Let's let's get engaged. Okay, certainly, Dan Senor, uh, author of Startup Nation, foreign policy advisor to uh, to Mitt Romney, and uh, advisor to Paul Ryan. Uh, thank you for joining us in Spin Class. Hope to have you uh, again very very soon. All right. Always enjoy being with you. Take care, Michael. And let's get that lunch at Prime Grill one of these days. At Prime Grill moved. They moved from 49th to 56th Street, so we'll have to catch it there. From 49th to 56th? Yes. So it's a, so you know, we'll even have closer to... to my office. Ex- All right. Okay. Looking forward Just to schedule it. Schedule a date. Excellent. Bye bye. Bye. We're here with Yair Rosenberg, a writer for Tablet Magazine, uh, who was covering the APAC uh, policy conference 2013. And Yair is also has a is a good Twitter leader. I don't know if you say if uh, if you're a follower, then you have a, a, a Twitter leader. 
as well. He also has an interest editing an interesting series, I think, on the Tikva website with regard to the Israeli chief rabbinate. So he is kind of uh, following the intersection between politics and the Orthodox community. Yair, welcome to Spin Class. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, well, it's great to have you on. It's good to kind of see you again. I saw you last week. And tell us about uh, the APAC conference this year. What are your uh, impressions? And you wrote a, uh, a nice article about the Orthodox presence at, a- at APAC. Uh, so uh, tell us about the growth and what you see and any observations about that. Yeah, so one of the things that you notice very uh, visibly at APAC is that there was a large contingent of Orthodox Jews and, uh, you know, Orthodox rabbis, and there was a lot of programming catered to Orthodox Jews. And we've seen all the food for some time now has been kosher, which is a rare thing, even at Jewish communal events. It's very expensive, for instance, to do it. It's not like they're out to get anybody. Uh, but impact goes out of its way to try to bring people in, and they have everything kosher. And so, yeah, I wrote this article basically just like going through all the different types of Orthodox Jews who were there and why they're there and why they see themselves as there. Um, and I guess it's part of a much broader story, which is that the Orthodox community is becoming much more politically organized and engaged. Um, and when I was actually reporting at the Republican National Convention, I wrote a similar story, which was about the Jews at the Republican National Convention at the, and who were involved. And you had two different groups, right? You had the groups that were, you know, the non-Orthodox, many of whom were very reticent about talking to a reporter about even being there because they didn't want people back home to know that they had showed up at a Republican event. Uh, but then on the other side, you had the Orthodox Jews who were there, who were very visible, who were much younger usually, and were very comfortable there. And they said, we, we see this as getting bigger. We see that in general that Orthodox Jews are getting more involved politically, right? and part of that is showing up at places like the Republican National Convention. So I've seen this in other places and not just at APEC. So APAC was very heavy, and I think you pointed this out, on, on rabbis, Orthodox rabbis, a lot of, uh, between the Orthodox Union rabbis, the Young Israel rabbis, and the Chabad rabbis. I noticed a tr- very significant showing amongst Chabad rabbis from around the country. Uh, are they actively recruiting rabbis to come and p- to be involved? It sounds like, and certainly this year, they had uh, a, a keynote address and a private address to Orthodox rabbis from uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, who happened to be in New York, they, and APAC invited him to come this year um, and speak. And uh, as well, there's an institutional partnership that's been going on for several years now between the OU and APAC um, as part of the, not part of, but related to the uh, APAC Synagogue Initiative, which is a part, uh, you know, outreach part of APAC that works with synagogues across the denominations to bring them to APAC, to involve them in APAC. And the Orthodox Union has been working very closely particularly um, through the efforts of Rabbi Stephen Weil, who is the executive vice president, uh, to partner OU shuls with APAC and uh, to bring OU rabbis to APAC and to find other ways to engage you know, shuls in the Orthodox Union with pro-Israel activism. So t- if you know a little bit more about that, I'd be curious to for the listenership, what, what does that mean exactly as far as the partnership? It just means that we make the rabbis more politically aware. Are are the are the rabbis there to drum up uh, support from their congregants to lead groups uh, on lobbying missions? What 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 are the parameters of that partnership? Yeah, it seems to go from what I've seen in stages. Um, you very often have at first they'll reach out to the rabbis and they'll bring the rabbis to the conference and the rabbis you know have you know, already sympathetic to this but perhaps have not been involved with you know say APAC or pro-Israel activism so much before. And then if the rabbis like what they see and they think that this is a valuable thing, very often they'll bring a few congregants one year, and then it can grow. And often, like, as the years go on, they can be bringing more and more congregants to the conference. Um, and so it's like it doesn't happen overnight, but it's rather a process. Any idea whether they're comping all these uh, attendants from the rabbis? Any idea whether they're... They're, they're comping all those uh, all the attendance fees for the rabbis. I would, no, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that they're covering things like the rabbis. They're not going to cover the congregations, but I suspect... They, uh, so that's a that's a big investment, I guess. It's five hundred dollars a person to attend the conference. And yeah, I'm not a, sure, honestly, because I did not ask. Okay. My and certainly there is, even once they're there, whether they pay or not, um, they allow the rabbis. Um, there are different levels of sort of like you know exclusivity at APAC, and there are different like rooms that you can get into based on how much money you've given. Right. And the rabbis get like honorary access to like the second level of that. You know, of course, they did not give that much money. 
right, uh, because they see them as valuable and as part of this. Do, do you get a feeling from the Orthodox community has a reputation for being more right-wing politically, and certainly uh, I think that's manifested itself by their voting patterns. And yeah. APAC is famously bipartisan. Uh, I, and does that – do you get any sense from people there that they – they're looking for something maybe a little bit more to the right of APAC, or it's kind of appeals to everybody, to the wide cross-section of the Orthodox community? So I did hear from some people that some synagogues don't go to APAC, and they go to something like NORPAC because APAC doesn't have an explicit religious component, and that is why they don't go. The people who do come to APAC usually seem to be comfortable there, um, and certainly when you hear people like Rabbi Weil speak about it and other members of the OU who are involved in this, they see it in religious terms and don't recall the fact that the organization itself is secular. Um, and they'll explain it in a religious framework. Um, sure. But there are people who don't show up, and I heard about people who won't come, and synagogues even that won't come, because it, it isn't explicitly religious, and that to them is an issue. What about the idea that... Uh, I, and I think you wrote about this, actually, if I was looking back, uh, about talking about politics from the pulpit, and uh, yeah. the rabbis wrestle with that. I think you wrote about that in, in the previous election. Uh, yeah. yeah, you did. Okay, good. So, uh, what about the, what about that issue? Do people just not, you know, they don't they don't view this as a, a political. They don't want some rabbis don't want to be involved in politics. Some rabbis do want to be in politics, involved in politics. Give give me an idea if you get any sense of 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 where that goes and whether. The rabbinic leadership itself is is perhaps wading into into something that they that they generally feel uncomfortable with or they or they are comfortable with. I don't know if you took an opportunity to interview any specific rabbis on that issue. Well, in the Jewish community for quite some time, though not recently, it's been the case that Israel pro-Israel is not a politically controversial stance to take. Right, certainly, like in pro-Israel, APAC associated is pretty, you know, vanilla. Most people can come together under that umbrella. Today, that's still true in a large extent, but not entirely. Obviously, there are competing pro-Israel groups, right, that are more to the left of APAC, and uh, even also to the right of APAC. And so, it's not as simple as saying, you know, if you are to go up there and give a sermon or take your synagogue to APAC, you are making a statement that is, as you say, political from the pulpit. Um, I would think, so you, you anticipated my next question, actually, because I, I was going to uh, highlight a comment that I got at the at the conference is specifically that the recruitment of Orthodox rabbis uh, by APAC seems to be going in direct op- uh, contradistinction to the recruitment of non-Orthodox rabbis by J Street. Yeah, so it wouldn't it would not surprise me. I'll put it another way, I. There are plenty of reforming conservative rabbis who come to APAC, and uh, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, although it may drop a little bit as a young generation uh, comes. But there are plenty there. Just the Orthodox are growing. Over there, and J Street is, is getting, being more successful in getting non-Orthodox rabbis. I don't think that's, that's an incident, right? And I think that that has to do some out with the politics of both communities. Um, that, yeah, no, for sure. And I guess I would say when it comes to um, why the Orthodox rabbis? Well, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. I think famously, uh, I, I recall somebody posting uh, or tweeting uh, at one of the J Street conferences that it was actually impossible to find anything kosher. So yeah, uh, that's what I would get to, which is that yeah, no, I yeah. So I was actually there was a couple years ago uh, an article written by the editor in chief of New Voices, Ben Sales, uh, who was at the conference. Um, the J Street Conference and covering it, and covering it rather sympathetically, and uh, then discovered there was no kosher food and wrote a pretty angry piece about how there was no kosher food at J Street. Have they fixed uh, that? They now ensure that they have at their dinner, right, but that's one particular, that's part of the meal, right, that they have, this is what I found, that they have a kosher option, right, so since 2011 at least that's the case. Maybe even it was in 2011 and it was missed by that report. Um, but, that's not the entire conference, and I have been there, and I was there in 2010 and could not find any kosher food either. I didn't write about it. Ah, uh, so, so the, actually, I usually I, don't insist on these things, right, because, you know, whatever, you know, it's not, I don't feel the need. I'm just a journalist. That might be uh, worth an upcoming segment on this show, the hunt for kosher food at J Street. Exactly. I mean, I always, in general, wherever I go, I hunt for kosher food. It's not always so easy. To, you know, It wasn't so easy to find kosher food at a lot of things that I've covered. 
but you would be surprised if it's a Jewish organizational event, right? And actually, I believe Michael Oren, speaking at the JCPA, brought this up um, just a couple days ago, um, and he actually uh, referenced the article uh, about Orthodox at APEC that I wrote for Tablet, and then he referenced the J Street story, and he said, I don't know what the story is right now. I'm not sure exactly what they do, um, but they should have a two-plate solution, <laughs> and they should have uh, <laughs> kosher and non-kosher options. Oh, <laughs> very interesting. So, yeah, yeah, I want to bring a second voice in. I have on the line Jeff Balaban, a longtime conservative activist who has been yeah. active in APAC uh, or was active. I don't know what the current status is, Jeff, but uh, you'll, maybe you'll explain. We're, we're, we're talking here about the Orthodox involvement in APAC and the growing uh, involvement politically amongst the Orthodox community. And I think that's something that you've been working on for many years and continue to work on. So, Jeff, uh, welcome back to Spin Class. Hello, Michael. How are you? So uh, the question specifically is, uh, what what do you gauge or take out of the, as Yair Rosenberg had told us, the very considerable Orthodox presence and uh, I guess a formal presence on, the, presence on the part of the OU at the APAC policy conference? Well, I think we're at a, at a uh, juncture. I mean, I am not a big APAC fan and haven't been for a very long time. Uh, I think APAC has diminished... Uh, real policy issues to the point of get up in a room full of Jews, say you love Israel, and we'll make sure that there'll be some money for your campaign. And I don't think that's a particularly good way to do business. I think that our enemies, meaning Israel's enemies, Jews' enemies, uh, take that exact line, and we call them anti-Semites, which is it's all about Jewish money and power. And it's not. There are, at least on the right, which is sort of where I come from, uh, there are many, many members of Congress who are, who are at least as deeply committed to Israel's safety and security as the average APAC member. And when they're treated as though they're doing this because, you know, it's, uh, it's a transaction, it actually frustrates them. Beyond that, it also diminishes what the policy issue is, which is to say it's not about saying you like Israel. I mean, if we had – this is about policy. This is about life and death policy. This is about issues of concern for millions of people in Israel. And when you have an APAC which says for years it's all win-win, it doesn't matter who wins elections, I mean, everyone knows that's sheer nonsense. Of course it matters who wins elections. You know, if I were debating, uh, if I had a policy issue of gun control or gun rights or, uh, or unions versus management and business, right, I'd know automatically which side matters to me. The notion that we need to be bipartisan to the point of sacrificing Israel and sacrificing our principles is outrageous. Not only that, if you talk to people in the Israeli government for years, they'll tell you APEC's line about doing whatever it is the Israeli government asks it to do simply isn't true. APEC has its own point of view, and it tends to be to the left. So when it's a leftist Israeli government, they're very happy. When it's a right-wing Israeli government, they're not very happy. Having said that, the influx of Orthodox, I think, is a positive. For a long time, Orthodox weren't particularly welcome at APEC, weren't made to be welcome at APEC, the famous Tom Dine story where he very negative things about Orthodox Jews, and he lost his job because it was unbelievable what he said. Uh, he lost his job as president of APEC, but there was still a certain mentality. Uh, I think that starting really outside the major uh, Jewish population areas, uh, APEC is becoming more and more dominated by uh, Orthodox at the grassroots level. And, uh, and while I think institutionally it's not really there. I think it's being pushed there by its base, and that's always been the problem. So dominated by the Orthodox? Uh, anybody want to pick that up? Uh, no, no, I'm yeah. saying out in the hinterlands. I'm yeah, saying yeah, I know. That, that, that's yeah. interesting because, yeah, yeah, I think one thing we talked about when we were there, I, at least that I noticed, was that there were quite a few, I, what it seemed, more Orthodox attendees, let's say, from outside the major pop, Jew, Orthodox population centers of New York and New Jersey, Brooklyn, Queens, Teaneck, the five towns, and there were a lot of Orthodox attendees from out of town, quote unquote, uh, from different places. Is that is that and so is that that would be interesting if if all, the Orthodox are dominating uh, APAC in outside in smaller cities. Yeah, you want to pick that up? I mean, I, I honestly can't say I can't speak to it because I you know haven't looked at these cities and how it works, nor seen who other which other synagogues came from different states, so it's hard for me to tell. Right. As I said, I think it's more of a relative uh, increase in Orthodox involvement, right? 
it, you know, if trend were, conti- were to continue, then you would end up with Orthodox Khomeini. At the moment, they're just becoming what we would say is an equal partner, which ends up being very disproportionate considering the proportion of the population, the Jewish population that the Orthodox make up. Now, certainly, the I think, you know, Jeff, one thing to keep in mind is that of the 13,000 people who were there, I think people come to to be seen. They come to, to for, in solidarity to a certain degree. They might not, as I, I mentioned earlier with the previous guest we had Dan Senor on, is that the two words that were not spoken are were Chuck Hagel. Nobody wanted to talk about it. But a lot of people privately, when I did some interviews, wanted to talk about Chuck Hagel. They wanted to talk about the fact that they were upset and frustrated by APAC's non uh, or, or pulling punches with regard to Chuck Hagel. And uh, I, that possibly points to a disconnect. Michael, you're, what you're describing has been Apex reality since the AWAC sale. I mean, it's been decades since they've played a major role in a major policy issue that really mattered, okay? The truth of it is that life and death issues take place in the Middle East, and APEC comes in and talks about foreign aid. And foreign aid is all very fine, but that's not what we need them to fight for. And it's easy to never lose, and it's easy to claim to be a very powerful lobby. When you're not doing anything, it's very controversial, leaving that to other groups to do. But, as you say, it becomes a show of solidarity. It becomes, for many Jews, many active Jews, many young Jews especially, a, uh, a core identity point, and those are all very powerful and very good things. But, uh, you know, listen, the narrative they have is not the narrative someone like me would have. And, and I know members who've gone on trips with them to Israel and have come back and complained that they'll never take them over the green line, they won't let them meet religious Jews. You know, they, they have a very leftist narrative. And that's because I think there's a, there's a moment in time now, which is why I say they're at, at, at an important juxtaposition, they're at a moment in time now where the base, for the longest time, had been, and, and when I say their base, it means, it, listen, this is a membership organization. Right? They, they live based on their members. And the membership has overwhelmingly been liberal Democrats. You know, they claim they want bipartisanship above all. By the way, it should never be above your core principles. But that's not what they feel about all the other issues they care about. They're the very clearly Democrat. I, I, so don't, have, I don't get the sense that of a, of a leftist organization, respectfully. I, I, that's just not the vibe. I get the non-confrontational, in a way. Or, But what about this sense of the power of – what about, I guess, the – misnomer or the canard of the Jewish lobby. I, I think everybody wants to talk about that, and you're kind of saying, well, they're not confrontational. They don't actually, they're, they're not that powerful. Listen, they're, they're not. Um, they're, they're the only game in town for a long time, and what J Street did, and by the way, you know, years ago I actually wrote a memo saying this is what's going to happen before, you know, in advance of the Obama election, or, uh, first presidency, was that in order to Bring more, keep more Jews in the Democratic Party. There, you know, there will be a Jewish group created that's basically shilling for the Democratic Party, pushing leftist agendas in the name of, of, of some Jewish organization, and that's what J Street is. But it only came into being because APEC set set the stage. APEC said for years, this is pro-Israel and that's pro-Israel. Hard left is pro-Israel, hard right is pro-Israel. It's all pro-Israel. We're all friends. It's all good. Well, sure, because pro-Israel doesn't mean anything in Washington. It's, it's like having a lobby that's pro-America. Would you ever give money to somebody if your issue was guns? Would you ever give money to somebody who says, I'm pro-America, give me money? It's a meaningless phrase, pro-Israel. Okay, so we're going to have to we're, we're gonna leave that issue uh, behind for a second. I want to talk about CPAC, the other PAC, that sure. uh, you are organizing a Orthodox contingent, or I guess a, at least a Shabbos program, at CPAC. And CPAC's in the news as was mentioned earlier, because they are snubbing various people, including Chris Christie, and some people want to make something of it, some people don't want to make anything of it. But you're promoting Orthodox involvement, or at least, I guess, actually Jewish involvement in CPAC. And why would why would, why would would Jews feel it's important to go to CPAC, which is the conservative conclave? Well, I'm actually not promoting, I mean, I'm not, I don't think of it that way, although you may be right, I have to think about it. What I'm really doing is accommodating people who are showing up already and making it easier for people who who show up on Thursday and Friday and want to stay for Shabbos but can't. And that that's existed for a number of years where uh, you know, people like me have shown up and then a lot of the best activities are happening uh, and we have to leave. So uh, when last year uh, a new group came up, the Young Jewish Conservatives, and I heard that they were, and it's a terrific group, and they take uh, 
college students from around the country to Israel, and uh, they teach them a tremendous amount. And these are students who, by and large, feel completely bereft of, uh, of, of uh, Jewish friendship in their college campuses because they're conservatives. And, uh, and so they bring them to Israel, and then all these kids, a lot of them are coming to CPAC. And so I saw an opportunity, if we were going to have, you know, a couple of dozen of these uh, in this new organization showing up, and, they're, uh, and the two founders of the organization, Rabbis Ben Packer and Yitz Tendler, said, why don't we make a Shabbos? So, you know, you bring the kids, and, and I was able to organize with the, the gracious help, very generous help of, of Yankee Brach, uh, you know, phenomenal food for everybody for the whole weekend, and we were able to get a Torah, and we had services on, on site, and we had food, and it was open to all, right? It didn't cost people money, they can come, and we knew of 20. Uh, Friday night meal, we were, you know, buried in some suite on the second floor. We had 85 people for dinner. They stayed for hours. I mean, Ted Cruz showed up. Uh, who's now obviously a conservative superstar. He was then a candidate. He showed up for Friday night for the meal for two hours, and then afterwards it was, uh, it was Parshat Yitro, right? It was Yitro, so I, I gave a shir on the Ten Commandments, uh, a talk on the Ten Commandments, and he is someone who, uh, as a state attorney general, had argued Ten Commandments cases. He stayed for another two hours. So we had four hours of Ted Cruz. Andrew Breitbart, it was shortly before he passed away, he showed up and he talked about his Jewish upbringing. I mean, who knew that he had gone to Jewish school? Uh, and others, you know, stalwarts like Michael Medved and Ben Shapiro came and spent the whole Shabbos. So, yeah, you know, this, this might be worth uh, covering for the magazine. It does that sound interesting. It does sound interesting. Yeah. What, what, so tell me about it just uh, very quickly. We're almost out of time to talk about what, what does it mean as to have a Jewish presence uh, at, as, at, at a conservative conclave such as this? Do people visibly see the... The Jewish presence. I mean, there, there are thousands of people there, and there might be, if you're talking about maybe 50 yarmulkes. You know, you're making an interesting point. So, not at this at this event, but at another similar Shabbat, which we're going to be doing again in June, the Faith and Freedom Coalition annual convention. So, in Washington, uh, somebody came up to me. Uh, it was actually a Wall Street Journal reporter, and he made a comment. He was shocked at how dominant the Orthodox Jewish presence was. Now. The truth is... Dominant to the conference or dominant amongst the, the Jews? No, no, in, in the conference at Faith and Freedom Coalition. Now, what, what's the truth? The truth is, what he saw was maybe 30 yarmulkes, because there were a lot of women there also, so we only had about 50 people there for Shabbos. It was a last-minute event. It was terrific. We're going to have a much bigger one this year. But it's obvious. In other words, when you don't expect to see it, and, you, and by the way, we're staying in the hotel. We're not circulating and coming back. We're not leaving. We're there for 25 hours. So when you see us at all the events and you see yarmulkes, it actually makes a very strong statement, and that was the impression it gave. And that's what happens here as well. It just gives a tremendous impression. And by the way, CPAC itself was so excited that we were doing this. I mean, they, they were through the roof excited. They were generous. They wanted to give us space and room and wanted to make a big deal about this. You know, this is, they love the fact that, that, that Orthodox Jews or Jews with very traditional values and conservative values are, are now beginning to come to the fore in, in policy issues. So extremely welcoming. And it does make a very, very strong and positive impression. Yair, just from your perspective as a journalist, what do, what do the journalists out there make of the Orthodox community? I, I think it's try it's hard to understand the insularity uh, of many in the Orthodox community, but at the same time, they politically they they're really about trying to flex their muscles. So you're saying, what does who make of them? What, what are the journalists? What what is the what are the oh. conventional wisdom? The people out there who you know who. Whose opinions matter? The opinion makers. Well, I'll tell you that David Brooks I, wrote this week about uh, his visit yeah. to pomegranate. Uh, for all things, yeah, some people are just not a very intellectual exercise. Exactly. So some people are just discovering sort of this, you know, the resurgence of the Orthodox, not the resurgence, but the continued, you know, raising of the profile. I'll tell you that there are plenty of people who the people who know, right? The people who are smart in the journalist and pundit class, and that's a small subset, <laughs> right? So they already know this. Um, and when I was, you know, preparing to go to APAC, one of the things I do, right, is I, I try to get in touch with people who are much wiser than I and have done many more of these sorts of things than reporters and others and ask them what I should cover. Um, and I talk to several people who have been doing this for a very long time and independently from totally different political perspectives and, you know, positions, they both, well, the first thing they said was to look, look out for the religious Jews at APAC, right, because that's going to be the story that people haven't talked about. Um, and so this is not, uh, there are people who have started to notice this. Um, and I think, you know, as, you know, this, Michael Oren mentioned my article, right, when he was speaking to the, you know, Jewish Council of Public Affairs earlier this week, right? It's becoming more and more widely understood and grasped. 
right? But the Orthodox community is now a force. Okay, Jeff, we are almost out of time, and we are actually out of time. I'm getting the evil eye here. But uh, tell us how somebody could sign up for the Shabbos, quickly. Sure. Um, it's a great question, and I, don't, I, I should have had the, uh, the website in front of me right now, but I know there's a... Okay, there's we'll throw event, it up. On there's, a, an Eventbrite, there's an Eventbrite page with that, or... Um, we'll throw it up on our website. Conservatives, right? oh. Okay, excellent. Okay, thanks. fantastic. Uh, Jeff Balaban and Yair Rosenberg, thank you for joining us. This is another edition of Spin Class in the Bag. Thank you very much on the Thursday Night Extravaganza here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Hope to have you back next week. Take care.